Welcome back to Secret Handshake, the podcast that covers the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number four, Cutter's Way from 1981, the most depressing L.A. neo-noir ever made, where the mystery doesn't matter and all you care about is getting away from these two scumbags. Cody. What you got? I'm hungry. I'm fucking starved. Give this clown enough to cover any damage. You'll get it back in a couple hours. Come on. Introducing Alex Cutter. You're kind of sexy. Do you have an appointment? Hey, Alex. How do I look? Hey, you look like a fat man on a horse, Georgie. Huh? Black's rich. Cutter's wife, Mo. The, um... Richard Bone fan club is now complete. This, for instance, is a tomato. Food, huh? Yeah, I remember food. People used to have to eat it during the Prohibition, didn't they? Occasionally for days on end. Cutter's best friend. My charger's got a bad battery, but will I do? <laughs> oh, no, you're too old. <laughs> Richard Bone. Buy some vitamin E. Well, it's been better for me, too. He's drunk. I have to give that another try. What makes you say that? Their life together wasn't exactly ordinary, but they never bargained for Cutter's fantasy. Is there Richard Bone here? Crushed trachea, fractured skull, 17 years old. That's him. This young friend of yours is pursuing some fantasy of his own and, and includes me. Whatever we do falls under the heading of justice. Dishonorable and gutless. So what are you going to do? <laughs> it's not a question of what I'm going to do. It's a question of what you're going to do with the time you got left. I'd say that you're the one that ought to be very, very careful, not us. You're the witness, remember? I've got one big problem. What's that? Your imagination. I haven't even begun to let my imagination loose on this one. John Hurd, Jeff Bridges, and Lisa Eichhorn in Cutter's Way, a film by Yvonne Passer from UA Classics.
Welcome back to Secret Handshake. I'm Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Cody Bouchard. Yes, sir. And the Mattress King of Austin, Martin Carlson. Martin, how are you? I'm doing well. You had a big week this week, right? I did. Uh, tell yeah, us about got, it. Got uh, promoted at work, which was cool. What do you do? Like, how do you move up the hooker hierarchy? Um, I now have my, besides just a corner, I have a block. Oh. I have a whole block now. So when what? do you get to go from stationary to a gigolo on the go? Uh, it's that's a while off. That's that's dream. That's okay. that's big dreams, right? Do you there. have a pager? Um, actually, a burner phone. Burner I'm phone. Much more like the wire. Like oh, that okay. Side of it. Yeah, like later in the wire, like season later, season one. Yeah. Yeah. So, so are you? Do you switch, or are you just one a one man like a one way man? I'm very much. I'm Julian, an American gigolo, but like a low okay. class South Austin version of that. How Ooh. gentle is your pimp's backslap? I don't have one. I'm, I'm alone. All right. Well, oh, you're me. an independent. I'm an independent. Yeah. Do you have a Craigslist ad? Um, it's actually in the back of the, um, what's that pamphlet you can get at the gas station where it's like the mug shots Busted? on the front? Fangoria magazine. No. <laughs> Maybe not. I am in Fangoria as well. <laughs> Busted. So. Busted. I'm in the back of that. So. All right. So now that we're over the uh, way that Martin <laughs> makes his rent, uh, this week we have Cutter's Way, 1981. The, in my opinion, one of the greatest L.A. neo-noirs, uh, certainly the most depressing L.A. neo-noir ever made. And first, I'm going to throw it to you two. Had you, neither of you had seen this before, right? I've no. never seen it, no. Okay. Martin, what do you think? I liked it a lot. I was really, um, it had been on my list for quite a bit. Right. Honestly. Um, It'd been hard to see for a while. Like there was it's always a on YouTube and Amazon now. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was like a low res, like MGM DVD for like a while, but it never really made it to Blu-ray until like twilight time came around and then they just went out of business. Um, so that disc is now kind of hard to come by. Yeah. But was, that's how we watched it because I had a copy. And it was very pretty. Um, yeah, for a, me, I just, it had been, I think it was one of those things that searching online, like the films I like to watch, which I like neo-noirs a lot. Sure. It was like, you might like, you know, Cutter's Way. So it was always like on my list. So I should see this eventually. So when you announced we'd watch it, I was like, well, now's the time to do it. You got algorithms like a motherfucker. I did, but you know, the algorithm's right. I mean, it's actually led me down to. <laughs> oh boy. Cody. Jacob. Algorithms exist for a reason. Uh, yeah, that's right. But we're not going to get into that because <laughs> I'm not going to sell my soul completely. Cody, what did you think of Cutter's Way? I enjoyed watching it with you guys, but honestly, I thought it was kind of a rough watch. Uh, there's not there's not too many characters. The only character that I really liked in the whole thing, spoiler alert, ends up dying. Yeah. Oh, it's totally like... You have nobody to root for exactly. except for maybe Mo. And even Mo, you're like, here's a completely broken person that's right. hard to spend time with. Yep. These are, I think we're establishing, we were texting back and forth already. And since we know the lineup of what's coming for the rest of the season, and even some of the ideas we've kicked around, like if we wanted to go forward with a season two, right. is that I'm going to be the depressing one. I'm going to be the one who picks the movies that, are like they're tough hangs, man. If you're gonna continue to 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 follow by example, then yeah, that's that's the route you're gonna take. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I think that this movie is obviously an all timer. Um, it's uh, why let, I let picked me, it. Uh, 
just say like I, I still thought it was a good movie. I just thought it was a tough watch. Yeah, it's a rough hang. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not gonna sit. Like I even kind of gave you guys a bit of a warning like right before because I started thinking about it a few days before we watched the movie, and I was like, "Fuck, Cutter's way is a bummer." You were, like, you were definitely indirectly like <laughs> prefacing us. You're like, "Look, guys, like I, you know, I chose this one. I like it a lot, but uh, it's it's not gonna be an easy sit through." Well, and and also as we after Hardy, even Martin was like, "I kind of like like this. They kind of have this buddy cop dynamic. Like maybe this could be a uh, like is, is there a future installment of this?" And you're like. No, just no. Yeah, you gotta, absolutely not. <laughs> not with the way that this there. movie ends. Um, and it's especially a bummer come down after fucking Hard Target, with this, which is like straight up ecstasy on a Blu-ray. Yeah. Yeah, and like, hard, like just the, it was a very different viewing experience. We're sitting in like the same positions eating the same snacks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, from but like, not cheering. We're all crying. Yeah, because Hard Target is a crowd pleaser, especially for like our Group. We were like literally fist pumping and I wanted you to play like whole scenes back and stuff. None of that happened with Cutter's Way. No. Um, I, I was though, when you when you warned us that you're like, oh, this is pretty heavy hang. It's pretty dark. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to watch it more. Like when you tell me that, especially you, mm-hmm. I'm like, yes. Like I, this is going to be, I've had friends like, it's pretty dark and depressing and it's like not at all. Yeah, you know, I'm like that. I get I get excited for that. But I, it, it delivers. I'm like fucking <laughs> scumbag Morrissey. Is that I'm just like I'm gonna bring you all down. I man. love it. Yep. I think that if it, it would have ended less intensely than it did, yeah, it, that it wouldn't be such a fond remembrance. I think that kind of really mm. cements it in your mind. No. Well, for me, like watching a bunch of it, like I wasn't um, fully. Because these guys are such anti-heroes and because there's the potential that all of this is just the, the spinnings of the, the, the Vietnam veterans, just PTSD'd mind, that like none of this could actually be true as to yeah. who they're trying to pin it on, that we might just be running an entire fool's errand for the whole thing. If it hadn't had that like staunch ending, I don't know that I would have revered it as much as I did. Yeah, it's the, the ending is like a straight up... Martin yelled out like loud. Like shot through the heart. Yeah, Mar- it ended it. and Martin that's went, end. that's the <laughs> end? <laughs> and yeah, but I mean, it is like, that's that's one of the things is it goes on on, a, on like a note that nothing, everything's hopeless. Like everybody loses. It, it definitely feels like a holdover. It's 81, but you had said, you know, it might've been one of the films after the failure of, of United Artists after Heaven's Gate, that it was kind of a, a new Hollywood holdover. Yeah. You know, it feels like a new Hollywood film to me, like heavy on the anti-hero. Well, and this movie you know. did get not butchered, but it got mishandled like mm. famously. Um, it's from a Czech filmmaker, Ivan Passer, who uh, he had directed a couple films before this, uh, but was mostly known for co-writing uh, Loves of a Blonde with Milos Foreman and Fireman's Ball, also with Foreman. And um, he was a part of this Czech new wave, came over to Hollywood, and, you know, he made a couple movies before this, but for me, Cutter's Way is like the masterpiece. It's the thing that came out of nowhere, the complete curveball, um, because it's very much has a... Europeans viewpoint of America in that, you know, he, he's an outsider looking in and he's then able to really make this commentary about the way that America exploits its people, uh, the rich and powerful, how they're allowed to get with nothing and how America is essentially built on that. And he injects all of this, uh, post Vietnam angst because it's very much about, these two guys who were broken by like 
different points in life. Like one literally broken with John Hurd's uh, Alex Cutter. And uh, he, you know, lost an arm and a leg in the war. And an eye. And an eye. He wears an eye patch, which he, we're going to get he into He definitely the... stepped on a landmine on his left side, and that, like, just blew his entire side into... Yeah, a, he, he a, got a hit by that or, like, mortar fire or something, and yeah. it just destroyed his... Like, he literally destroyed his body. And then you have Rich Bone, who is... Uh, <laughs> Aptly named. Yeah, who's uh, Jeff Bridges. And Bridges is incredible in this movie. He plays kind of like a ditzy gigolo, like low-rent gigolo. Gigolo um, slash boat salesman. Yeah, exactly. He's a yacht salesman because even his boss, um, he says, like, you still basically look good standing on a boat. Like, his boss has one of the most, with, like, a throwaway piece of dialogue, he has the biggest insight into Bridges' character because he's basically saying, like, you were once this shining sex object and you're still very, very good looking and you look great on a boat. But like, Cody, you even made the comment like through about three quarters through the movies that you're like, what's up with Bridges's face? Like, His it's skin. just so bronze. seems so it seemed like he was covered in sand almost. Yeah. Well, he looks like a guy who's done nothing but spend time on boats right. and on beaches, seducing women. And like we even, when we first meet him, he's essentially sleeping with a rich housewife, which I mean, yeah. this kind of explains why Martin connected to the movie so hard. Absolutely. Um, but he basically gets I felt paid. Martin's heart grow three yeah. sizes in that film. He's like, I'm seeing myself like this is representation. This is a big step forward for me and for the other male hookers out there who screw Desperate Housewives for gas money, essentially, yeah. which is what Jeff Bridges does. I felt like this was more like a documentary for like Martin's lineage, like he was watching a film of his grandfather, like really yeah. own the craft that he has come to take upon. Yeah, I mean, Martin is very good looking. I mean, he doesn't quite look like Jeff Bridges. Not quite. Actually, similar he, hairstyles now, now that the, no, uh, the quarantines let him grow it out. So yeah. I've been growing my hair out. And the stash. If you just shaved the beard, you... you that's uh, not going to happen. But <laughs> yeah. the, the hair, I was watching it, and I was actually taking notes because... Bridges looks fantastic in this film. He does. Yeah. He, he's a stud. His eyes are so sparkly. They, blue, they don't blue. even look human. He's that's interesting about the, the, him. Him in the film, though, I think in the a best lot, way. A lot Star of Starman, exactly. <laughs> a lot of us have relationships with him when he's like much older in terms right. of the films we like with him. I mean, like a lot of generation, it's, it's the dude, you know, <laughs> or and, and stuff where he's a little bit more. He's not playing a sex symbol in any way. Yeah. Well, even in this, Tron, you don't see enough of his like natural affectation. You just see the the, the rendering of him, so you but don't really get early the Early on, he has that like he has that Han Solo energy as Flynn in the beginning of Tron, where sure. it's like that cocky, yeah. like like Wunder, Wunderkind kind of thing going on. But um, real quick, on the point you were making about it, you know, being a European's view of like post Vietnam America, it also kind of reminds me of Paris, Texas in that way. You have Vim Vendors kind of coming over and doing this film where it's like his view of Americana. Obviously the story is very different, but it's also I like the idea of a he did kind of, something similar with the American friend too. That's actually a better so that's a better example. Yeah. But the thing is that he's making kind of that's more of an American thriller done by like uh, an Eastern European art house filmmaker. Yeah, you know? and it helps when you have Robbie Mueller shooting it. So I and mean, it's gorgeous. But yeah. I mean, Cutter's Way has Jordan Cronenworth. Uh, Cronenworth, yeah, who shot Blade Runner and, and Rolling Thunder. Yes, <laughs> and Rolling Thunder. So we've got. You know, I was it, actually going to make a, a a tie to Rolling Thunder, um, but the the juxtaposition of like the endings and how semi abrupt that they were. But whereas Rolling Thunder, when it ends, like you have this kind of uplifting feel, like the the buddies thing worked out. Whereas in this film. At 
at the abrupt end, it's just like that was rough and that didn't go the way that anybody well, and wanted it's, it to. Well, it's sort of ambiguous, too, because it ends with a gunshot right. and then it just cuts to black. Mm-hmm. And we'll get and into... it doesn't just cut to black and roll credits. It cuts to black and there's like, I don't know, a 15-second beat before the first credit rolls. Yeah. So you're not quite sure if oh, there's going to be... Oh, it lets you feel that shit. Well, I think it, it's also holding you in anticipation if it's going to fade back in and if the yeah. story's going to continue. And that was the point where Martin went, that's it. Exactly. <laughs> like, it was just like... Because it does kind of head fake you a little bit uh, into thinking maybe there's like a coda or something but there's no coda it's just nope this Cred- is credits roll we're done but we, i could feel it though when that yeah. happened i'm like that's the end of the movie but it was like i was also happy that was the end i'm like that's yes yeah that's how it should be but um this also becomes i mean you, you basically catch up with these two guys and they get embroiled in a possible murder um that where the you well, know it's, it's definitely a murder. I mean, it's definitely a murder. But my my point is more that like they don't know the details of it. Right. Like they literally like Bone is driving home. Um, his car breaks down. His car, his little shitty ass sports car that has like a tear in the the cloth roof. That breaks he uses down. for an excuse to not tip the valet, which I took issue with. Yeah, that's. I mean, he's a cheap fucking scumbag, man. But like, um, it breaks down in the middle of a rainy alley. And he sees somebody dump a, a teenage girl's body into a trash can, like literally fold her body up to where her feet are sticking straight up in the yeah, air. It's such yeah. a fucking he doesn't know the time. He had the corner design. He keeps walking. Yeah, like, thinking back, it's like, oh, I did. I was there. There's red heels and the fishnets just sticking up out of a 1950s looking, you know, just trash, trash can. can. Yeah, and then. Um, he, you know, talks to, we find out that basically Cutter is his best friend. He meets up with him at a bar where he, there's some hardcore drunk racism that goes down. With I don't like, think he was even drunk. I think it was in, intentionally antagonistic that he knew he could get out of. So yes. he was just stirring up shit just to stir up shit. Well, and that's kind of, kind of becomes like a recurring right. uh, character trait of his because like He's playing he the fucks cards with the black have. guys in the bar by basically just using the N word and like talking and almost like. He sounds like a character from Deadwood at times, like the way he's very poetically like Shakespearean. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that that's such an, an interesting like way for them to represent that like his body's like destroyed, but his mind is still clearly like going eight million miles a minute. Right. And that's what plays into to your point um, when. Uh, you know, Bone brings him this mystery is then all of a sudden he starts spinning his wheels on it because they think they recognize or Bone thinks he recognizes the killer from the alley uh, uh, who's on the back of a horse like during a parade. And it's a rich guy. He's basically a rich tycoon in town in Los Angeles. And they begin to sort of investigate with the dead girl's sister. And to Cody's point... And one of the things that I really like about the movie, and it sounds like Cody didn't like, is that the mystery doesn't matter. It's literally all about possibly this completely jaded, horrible, horribly like disfigured human being, like attaching meaning to something and essentially finding his white whale. Right. Because this... Yeah, that's a great analogy. It's, I mean, I think it, I don't think it's any let's say mistake or there isn't a tossed off decision in this movie. And I don't think it's by coincidence that Jeff Bridges 
character sells boats and it's all full of nautical imagery and john hurd is wearing an eye patch he becomes ahab in a weird way and he's got a peg leg exactly he even has a peg leg it's a pirate story on land in the early 80s and where this guy basically finds his white whale which is this rich guy who he's gonna pin this murder on regardless because this guy is the one who sent him overseas uh, to essentially die for a nothing war. And all of a sudden, Alex Cutter becomes this avatar for uh, the disenfranchised in America following Vietnam. And it's all, it's, it's literally him pouring all of this hate and rage and like desire to have some kind of purpose in life that it literally destroys everybody around them in the end. Isn't it interesting to compare to, I mean, obviously many comparisons to Rolling Thunder where, you know, obviously amputee, um, you know, with PTSD, obviously both handling in very different ways. Vietnam survivor. Yeah, exactly. And, but what's interesting is that they're both looking for a new war in a different kind of way. Like, you know, one is like this very violent, like I want to go in blast in and cutter, obviously physically you can't really do that, but it's more of like, I'm going to be a detective. Also, he like the brain is all he, like he said, is all he has left. He's totally sharp. So it's like, but I love your idea. Watch that is he sees in, is it, it's Cole, right? Is that the name of the, I believe so. I have to look it up. I think there's a lot of weird similarities between this and Chinatown, which is another film noir made by a European who himself was destroyed by war. Yep. Um, and then the Manson family. So, you know, the, the parallels between the two, especially being an LA noir are kind of unmissable. I felt some serious Chinatown vibes as well. Just like, and the, and the also the the way it's shot is the kind of blinding. Also, they're always hungover. So it has that blinding sense yeah. of a hangover. Like when you're first watching. Everybody in, morning, in this movie is drunk or hungover at all times, and it has that piercing, like ugly light of of California. Which there's also those moments in Chinatown's an oppressive heat and like intense light is coming down on these people. There's something else that um, it's Robert Ellswood who shot. Uh, Inherent Vice does the same thing to where you're always viewing L.A. and that mystery through a fog. Yeah. The same fog that, you know, inhabit uh, Doc Sportello's brain. And with Cutter and Bone, you're basically just watching... Uh, I just realized I called it the wrong title. That was the original title of the movie was Cutter and Bone. Yeah, and I then love the that studio title. changed it, but it's Cutter's Way. You uh, you you showed us a poster. That yeah, had the original title. Well, it was one of the things that they botched with the release. Is they originally re- like they had it as Cutters and Bone, Cutter and Bone, and then they pulled it because audiences hated it, and then they re-released it, and it still kind of got ignored. It, this was a movie that was discovered years later mm. by people, and that's one of the other things I want to talk about. It just with me personally because like this was a movie that I saw much later in life and became attached to back to the the original topic at hand um you know you're you're watching this movie you're almost watching it through the eyes of uh John Hurd's wife Absolutely. Alex Cutter's eyes yeah uh, of Alex Cutter's wife uh Mo her eyes because she's always drunk and she as Cody has pointed out is probably the only sympathetic character in the movie. And you feel like she's only hanging around because she recognizes that Cutter is still sharp. They have a ton of history together. And also 
her and Bone might have an unrequited thing. Like the entire time, there's this energy between them of like. Well, they definitely do, and they they de- they address that later. You know, she kind of brazenly says it, being like, you know, we've always I don't remember the exact yeah. dialogue, but it's essentially they like danced around. Like, it. Yeah, like we both know what's going on here, and we both know it can't be. And then she gives in to him later that night, right? Exactly. <laughs> Horribly depressing. Scene. In the in the most depressing sex scene ever filmed. Yeah. There's just <laughs> tears. Yeah. Uh, and it that's like the main image that he focuses in on. He literally zooms also, in on her face as she's like painfully crying while he fucks her. And you're like, How just like Jesus. consumed in your own agenda do you have to be to continue having sex with a woman who is crying? Like, how does he not just stop? Yeah, you're you like, were, hey, what's going on? What's wrong? Like, what can I do? You were really hung up on the fact that he just kept going. You're yeah. like, at what point do you stop He's and go, Are you on okay? her face? It just keeps, you know, pumping away. And it's like, what? How? I don't understand. It's gr- it's real bad. It's inconscious. But I think that that's also one of those things to where it again speaks to his character to Absolutely. like he's just consummating a love that's been there the entire time and she's enduring it more the, than anything. The sad thing too is I don't like, know love is the right word. I, I think Cody, you're right. Because what I'm getting there, which I think from her perspective, I'm seeing very much like a little bit of sense of like with American Gigolo, there's that scene where he's already with um Lauren. The, the, his his love interest in the film, mm-hmm. and they've already had sex numerous times, but they're there in the bed together, and she's like, "We just kissed for a while," yeah. and he's like, "No, baby, you drive me crazy," and she goes, "Well, when we when we make love, you go to work." This is idea that like you're not, which is a great line. It's a very Schrader line, right? And you have right. here this very the scene as well where. He is this, like, I think she sees that this is, like, this conquest of his still. Like, there's, it, there's love there, but it also has a sense of, like, I, I feel to bang every woman in this town that I want except you. There's, I think there's underneath the scene. Well, we, we talked uh, last week about, in Hard Target, how, like, you had that scene where Chance goes back home and blows the, the dust off the shotgun. And I'm you on see, the Yeah, you see basically years of backstory and kind of like a a glance from Wilford Brimley to where to where like, you know, as Cody kind of pointed out, like you all of a sudden realize that Chance's parents died. He took him in like he became homeless, but he never came back to his uncle and his uncle was still like ready to roll the entire time. Well, the same way is with all of the kind of unrequited stares across the room with Mo and Bone is that um like you imagine like where the all three of their relationships started in probably high school, I would imagine. Yes. They're still living in this old ass dilapidated Spanish style house in the middle of LA that feels like it hasn't been renovated since probably the time they were kids. And they've just been continuously stuck in this amber that is Los Angeles in the, the post-Vietnam era, and they've never been able to mentally move on, any of them. And we're viewing it all through Moe's either drunk, and she's the most drunk because she's a... Yeah, your a, first introduction to her, she's halfway through a bottle of whiskey. I think it's vodka. She's a second bottle of vodka. Yeah, she's, like, she's okay. just Opens a new going. One. Yeah. <laughs> I feel Not, like vo- the, the bottle of vodka is like the shorthand for alcoholic. They're like, if, are they drinking vodka out of the bottle? They got a problem. So, no taste, like, just going for it. Yeah, they're just they're going for the fuel. But like, yeah, she we're watching it through her eyes the entire time, and it's just, of course, the saddest, most like crushing, like soulfully crushing 
story for the three of them. There's like inevitability. Like she sees everything as kind of inevitable. Like she's like yeah. stuck in this rut. So like she, so that's one thing. She's the drunkest, but also the most clear headed. Like she sees things more than anyone else does. Right. Like she's right. Like she even confronts them at a certain point and calls them all out on the, like oh, the what vegetables and the groceries. Yeah. yeah. Well, and what they're essentially doing is basically like assigning importance and doing all this and probably nothing ever happened. And his, you know, Alex's response is to literally hit her. And it's like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's a, it's a very like brutal scene. And you also, and she says like it wasn't the first time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, but then you have, it's interesting. You have uh rich come in and say, but it'll be the last like right. playing the hero. It's also like, even that moment, it's not like, yeah, rich It's more like you suck too. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you're you've part been of around this. all these years. You have to have known this has been good. But it's also, on. you're part of this, this environment. Well, like well, they, they are, even the recurring thing that even cutter keeps saying to bone, like even when he presents him with the idea of investigating the mysteries, he goes, Oh, you're doing the thing that, uh, Rich Bone does the best. You're walking away, and you also you wonder in that moment, like how many times has he hit her, and he's just like either turned a blind eye or just walked away from that. Okay, have you ever read the old uh, Travis McGee novels by John McDonald, mm-hmm. where he's basically just this knight errant? Uh, was it the entire tarnished bronzed armor? He just lives on a houseboat and he uh, solves mysteries, and all of his mysteries. Uh, revolve around usually a battered woman or a miss like a disappeared woman or somebody who's been hurt by men and like he rushes in and he literally plays like white knight at certain points do you get backstory on him did was he like oh yeah it's a whole series sort of a thing no nothing like that you like you get little blanks like you get very vague details but i mean over the course of 22 books or something like it because that was a big dime store series in like the sixties. Um, and they made a movie out of it with Rod Taylor. That's really good. Uh, but like you get the idea that Jeff Bridges is almost like the bad version of that. The one who has no heroics and isn't going to rush into battle. He's literally just going to do whatever he needs to, to pass through the next day, maybe get laid, get some gas in his shitty sports car and some food in his belly. And he's good. It's and interesting that he's ready for the polo match. Yeah. It's interesting that, I mean, to bring up Big Lebowski, it is another loose kind of noir um, inspiration. That's true. And it's like, and they're both losers in their own way. One is much more lovable mm-hmm. and has like a, 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 you know, a cast of characters. Even Walter is lovably an asshole. You right. like Walter. This is like a more realistic view of like, there's, there's such an. John Milius. Yeah, John Millius, based on John Millius, and there's very much an environment to this film that. And really they also comes have to go uh, after Jackie Treehorn, who is the you know, the 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 peak of this empire. Yeah, there's, there's, there's this you know big, and there's this the way that maybe like not most intelligent people view conspiracies. He views objects as women, women man. man. But it's also interesting to think about this, and then also Arlington Road, which is a very paranoid film. Oh, that's Jeff, true. Jeff Bridges. I like, didn't think about that. Believes his neighbor is a uh, a domestic terrorist. And then what you have with um, this film is the opposite of that character who's like, I don't even want to get involved. Like, I was there and I saw it. And his friend is like, hey, buddy, let's do this. And he's like... I'm good. Like I'm good. Well, not not only I'm good, but it's my ass on the line. My yeah. face is in the papers. Whoever did do this knows that I am the witness. But it doesn't. He also doesn't seem to care about that. It's more like he's just lazy in a way. It's yeah. Like, I just want to go back to my normal life of just like like having sex with women and being on my boat and like trying to sell. It's a very laissez-faire thing to his whole existence. Yeah. The know? whole thing that keeps the entire like. 
there's a few things, but, uh, you know, first John Hurd gives one of the greatest performances of the eighties and the seventies. Like, I think it's one of the the greatest performances I've ever seen. Like period. He's definitely swinging for the Oscar fences. Yeah. And bridges who's always been one of our best and possibly undervalued actors like throughout history is incredible as this very, laissez-faire douchebag the entire time. Who, Can we get into his wardrobe? Oh, man. His wardrobe is dope. It is on point, and it could play today. Martin, you said that uh, I, during, I, during the, the watch. Again, like watching, like seeing his long hair and my long hair, I was just looking at like the whole thing. I was but like, Can he's I? like straight up like a Yacht Rock warrior, he man. Is. He's, he's, he's a Yacht Rock model. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's, you know, he's ready for a Brian Ferry album cover. <laughs> yeah, he's very like... His performance is like, I think that what you're saying about him not being appreciated as an actor as well is that he can play a lot of, a lot of things subtly. Yeah. Like he doesn't hit for the fences. Like 100%. I think Hurt's character is very big. Yeah. And I rewatched uh big last, I rewatched big last night where he plays the villain. You yeah. Know? And it's so funny that we were saying, I think we were talking about this a couple weeks ago, like that most of our generation knows John Hurt is like the dad from home alone or like the asshole from big or, or I think the husband from deceive. Like he always played these kind of, had some money, was very like uptight. I'm glad that you remember Deceived. I feel like five people remember that I, fucking movie. I love like because he's the bad guy. He's the bad guy. He's the shitty husband. You think he's dead? And he, yeah. It's like like I went on a whole binge of like watching like '90s like domestic thrillers like this last couple of months, sure. and I just had a really great. That was one of them. And how many times did you watch Sleeping with the Enemy? One, I watched it once, but I really liked that film a lot. That and, movie sucks. Uh, but uh, <laughs> anyway, but I, I think that to see Heard here. It's always interesting to see an actor you're like, wow, like I know him as like his older dad. Yeah. And to yeah. see this like he's young, but he's also broken down. And it's just a lot going on. It's interesting the Moby Dick thing you said earlier too. Like he says, like, here comes Ishmael, the first thing he think you hear him say yeah. when when um when Bone walks into the bar. It's like you're already giving like Moby Dick references. Yeah, it's one hundred percent a Moby Dick story. It's just on land. Yeah, exactly. Um the the other thing though is the the performance that kind of keeps it all grounded is Lisa Eichhorn, who, you know, we've already developed a bad habit in the first two episodes of leaving at least one performance out. And it's funny to link this to Rolling Thunder again is Linda Haynes is like one of the, the, the things that keeps that the glue that keeps Rolling Thunder together and makes it not overwhelmingly bleak and horrible even though it is both of those things often is her performance as uh, well, she's kind of the audience's way into it. Right. Exactly. Well, and she's also like you, I always had a theory about her characters that it's our way of identifying what heroism was supposed to look like, especially when we're talking about like troops overseas is that she represents that pure, I looked up to these boys in blue, these right. men who flew these airplanes. I'm in, in Vietnam. love with this guy. I didn't even know. I wore his name yeah. on a bracelet for years. And granted, you can graft on a lot of your own kind of political theories about that too, because you could also say, well, you did it because you wore it when you were a pre, because she wears his bracelet the entire time while he's in the POW camp. And she even says like, she was basically a preteen when she started like wearing it. And you can graft that kind of political thing onto it too, is that, you were too young to know that soldiers can also be bad. Um, and it kind of, it's that Schrader duology thing. But in this movie, uh, Mo becomes like 
us as well, as Cody points out, kind of like an audience surrogate, is that she's the only one who watches these two guys the entire time and is like, you're probably both full of shit, and I've known that you've been full of shit, like, for years, and you can go fuck, like, get your your shit together or go fuck yourselves, you know? And she's the only one that, like, even for just a moment tried to pull them out of this downward spiral where she brings home all the fresh vegetables and things from the grocery store. And And she's like, we're going to eat vegetables. We're probably going to stop drinking and we're going to get ourselves out of this shit, which I feel like was the the subcontext to that. Yeah, and then she and, gets slapped in the face for it. Yeah, and she gets slapped in the face for it. And her performance is, like, it's amazing because she's beautiful, but she's just destroyed. Like, you can her see... Her face reflects yeah, how years of hard, hard living. And you, ha- I have to imagine, anyway, like you said earlier, that they all started together as high school friends. Her and Cutter yeah. probably got together then. He got drafted or signed up for Maybe the before he went to war, too, yeah, and, absolutely. like, she stayed with him through yeah, that, that and that's felt what obligated. I mean. like they got yeah. together before the war, 100%. and he gets drafted or signs up. He goes over, comes back a very broken man, yeah. looking for a new fight to fight. Doesn't come back as the same dude, but her just out of loyalty and remembering who he was and knowing what he's been through and that it wouldn't be fair to him to leave just because of circumstance. She sticks with him and basically destroys her own life in the process. Well, I also think that she she is attracted to his intellect. Like, you can sue... But it's probably not... It's it's, it's there, twisted now. Exactly. It's there. It's been perverted yes. in a way. Um, but I'm glad that you brought up Herd, not to pivot too hard to this, because it, it does give me an in to talk about how I first experienced this movie is because, like, you know, we... And on this podcast, it'll come up many times is like, we're going to talk about movies that we've held on to since we were kids, you know, and we've loved like with you and hard target. Like I saw rolling thunder at a young age. Uh, Cody saw six string samurai at what? 19. Yep. Um, so like, we're all bringing up these movies from our youth because I mean, let's face it. There's like a formative period in your life between, I would say like 13 and 17 were what you ingest and what you really... I'd go even further. I'd go like 13 to 22. You think so? Yeah. You think it stretches that yeah, far? Well, they say like the frontal lobe for males anyways and fully formed until like 24 or 25. So I think... I think. Well, I guess... And that would include like college years for many people sure. too. So you're still ingesting all of that kind of formative stuff. Yeah. But th- that decade, let's sure. say 13 to 23. Yeah, yeah. Is that you're ingesting all this stuff. You're like... You, and it's making... It's essentially becoming like the recipe for your taste. You know, it's all the ingredients that define like what you like, what you're attracted to, what art means to you and what it needs to stimulate you both like intellectually and emotionally. It's what forges your sensibilities. Exactly. But that's a much more succinct way of putting what I just said. Yeah. Like, cause for me, like I had a, just a real quick similar to you, it was me with Nashville for Robert Altman. There you where, go. Where I was not an Altman fan growing up. I saw Gosford Park when I was 17. I'm like, nope. Like in the theater, and it was just like <laughs> not the time to watch Gosford Park, right? And that movie's just blown up across the country, and you're like, not for me. But no, I saw it in the theater, I just hated it. But it's Robert like, Altman's clue. Yeah. And then I see I finally watched Nashville on a 35 millimeter print, and it was like, I get Altman now. Like it just hit me. I was 31 years old. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, I love I love him as a filmmaker now. It was yeah. just like this click, this like switch, right? Yeah. Well, and it's also the thing that like, there's one thing about cinephiles that drives me fucking crazy, and it's the knee-jerk reaction whenever, whenever like somebody says, I've never seen X classic movie. And they're instantly like, what are you talking about? 
like, how could you have gone this foot long without seeing it? And it's like one of those things where... Then they immediately judge your intelligence because you haven't seen it. Exactly, yeah. And it's just kind of like... And we've all been there, and I guarantee you even everybody at this table has probably done it once in their life. It's just a bad fucking habit that, like, you get into if you get into, like, this art form, let's say. But, like... At the same time, I truly believe, like, I not to sound all, like, hippy-dippy or whatever, but, like, sometimes, like, you come to certain movies at certain points in your life for, like, a purpose. Like, they're you're meant to see it at this time. And then that becomes a formative building block or a pivoting point for you to where, like, all of a sudden from there you want to go, you want to jump down this rabbit hole or that rabbit hole. And then it's like the next chapter in your taste and in your life and in the way that you continue like pursuing your uh, consumption and frankly, understanding of art in general. Yeah, absolutely. Cause, and it's sometimes you're like going interesting way to like go about loving film is to, I like this kind of thing. And you go down this rabbit hole. So it's like, okay, you like Chinatown and like everyone likes Chinatown. Yeah. And then it's like, Oh, here's something called Cutter's Way. And like you keep going deeper and deeper. It's like for me, like I love Michael Mann. It's like through him I found Melville. You right. know what I mean? It's like you go down these like steps to like other cinema. It's like, and the older you get, maybe you have some more room for subtlety. Because when I was 17, I didn't want to watch a Melville film. I just wasn't at that point right. in my life yet. Yeah, but you weren't ready to ingest Godard yet. It was not. And and I think like we were talking about this film too, is like it's so not plot point heavy. That I think if I had seen this at 17 as well, I would have been bored out of my mind. Yeah. So I, it was just too much. Just It's a lot of character and a lot of subtext that I right. wouldn't have picked up on, I, I think, at yeah. that age. I, uh, I, I, I think, agree 100%. I think no matter what age you are, though, we can all agree that John Hurt has one of the great monologues of all time in this movie where he goes through what every American experienced uh, when watching the war in Vietnam and like there are three different levels of essentially like dark enlightenment. And, uh, it, we're going to play that audio probably in the break before questions, yeah. uh, just so people can experience it because it's not only is it a great piece of writing, man, he like delivers it in a way it's the, it becomes the movies like, Ahab moment to where you're just like, yep, this is what the movie's about. Like he's literally verbalizing what the entire movie is about. It's like Willem Dafoe's long, beautiful speech in the lighthouse where it's just like, Oh, it's this like very, yeah. you know, professional real quick though. Will you uh, elaborate just like what it was that you saw when you're at the Ritz? Like what hit you about this movie specifically? Um, how old are you? Oh, this was three or four years ago. Okay. So 30, Three or, so you weren't 27 34. or like that. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I mean by like coming to a movie like later in life is gotcha. that it was just kind of like, like I'd been divorced at this point um, with another woman that I love, lost several job, jobs, gained several jobs, had an undergrad degree. Like, you know, it's just plenty of stuff that you've done that you watch it. And honestly, that's that's my answer to the question is that I watched it and I was like, this is a movie about uh what it means to lose and it's a and if you've ever experienced that like you know i don't know like i think there's a deeper emotional connection to just be like yeah this is what happens when you completely bottom out you lose and you're searching for anything that will give you a semblance of purpose again. And that's what these guys are doing only you hope that it turns out better than it does for them <laughs> 
isn't it real quick? Isn't it interesting too? And a film you see earlier in life and you don't like it, you come back to yeah. you're saying it's it's there when you need it. Yeah. Like for me, honestly, the film was it's a wonderful life where I saw it growing up and I'm like, this is cheesy. It's a Christmas my parents want to watch. And then right. like I went through a horrible time in my life with some deep depression and therapy, and I felt like a failure. And then I saw that movie in the end is him saying like, no man's a failure who has friends. And I started bawling my eyes out. It's like, you're there at that moment connecting with a story right. that you as a younger person who hadn't really like lived through dark times, was like <laughs> this is a cheesy yeah, Jimmy fine. Stewart movie. And then all of a sudden it hits you, right? Uh, so I, suicide. I, I just had an idea. <laughs> I just had an idea while y'all both were saying that. What if this, and I want to get your thoughts. What if the movie actually represents uh, the two characters where Jeff Bridges represents naivety of just regular, I guess uh, growing up, coming through life, going through adolescence and adulthood, maybe being sheltered, and then Cutter represents life experience and life shitting on you and how rough the world really is, and it's not just going to turn out okay, and you can't just rest on your laurels and be like, well, I don't really care about that. It doesn't affect me because ultimately it does. To me, it kind of shines on younger Americans in politics and voting. Well, and to go a bit deeper than that, I also think it, it deals with the idea of like just in the way that their characters uh, deal with any sort of conflict with Bone walking away and Alex obviously rushing head on. But also looking for a fight. Uh, yeah, and almost, well, I'm more talking about on the almost like a primal level. Okay. Like you imagine Cutter as a, sh- as a soldier and I have no problem in my head going, he's the guy who picked up his rifle and probably charged and got hit by a fucking, like... Jump on a grenade or, or save someone or a landmine to Cody's point to where a bone probably burned his draft card and was like, I'm good. And he probably didn't even burn his draft card. He probably was just Said like, he, he didn't, yeah, or was just like, you know what? I'm good. Like, if they come to the door, I guess I'll go, but I'll take I'll probably, my boat out into yeah. international waters and they can't touch me, man. Exactly. There, there is a sense of like, not in, there's a sense of privilege to, to bone, right? That it's right. like, He's beautiful. He has all these things yeah. already. His his whole body. Lackadaisically, too. He's, but like but it's like he doesn't have to work hard because he has it all, right? And then you have Cutter, who's like literally been torn apart. But what's interesting about that, and I think that the, that the movie goes towards kind of where Cody keeps hitting on the idea that like Cutter keeps looking for a fight. Um, what I find really fascinating about his character is that he experiences a different sort of privilege in that he exploits yep. his disability. Yep. I was going to, I was going to directly ask you if it didn't come yeah, up to, 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 to where touch on that he, because he loves, cause he picks the fight with the black dudes and he, he kind of the shit out of his neighbor's car exactly. into his neighbor's own lawn and For breaks really the no reason. It's completely unprovoked. He's drunk. And then when the cops show up, he, he no, basically is like, I'm he sorry. He rams his neighbor's car like multiple times. Yeah, it's it's horrible. And his neighbors are like, are you going to lock him up? And the cops are like, what, lock up a serviceman? He goes inside because he intentionally just, like, and puts on his service jacket so he can come back. And he tells the cop like, oh, I just know you're you're doing your, your job and your duty. I know, sir. A, I know a thing about duty myself. Sir. Yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a crazy scene. But it also, again, says so what much the guy, about What does the cop him. write him a ticket for? Um, uh, no uh, expired license. Expired yeah. license. That's right. Yeah, he's a, yeah. Yeah, insurance can sort everything else out. He's like, you're right, and that's when he pulls the 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 whole. You're just doing your job, sir. I gotta have to write. I have to cite you for expired license. I know because he knows that if this is the worst that he gets away with, then he won that night. Oh, he's 
he's already smug about it. He's already yeah. happy that it turned out that way. Well, when he talks, he starts talking shit to his neighbor the entire time. And is like, you're just, you're with the neighbor to where I'm like, I would fucking shoot that guy. I yeah. would fucking shoot him in the I'm face. I'm shocked the neighbor didn't deck him at some point. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, that would have just gotten worse because then now he would have played up. A, 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 serv- a Vietnam cripple. Yeah, exactly. Damn, you went I didn't want to use that term. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've, been, I've just been hanging away from that line. We're leaving that one in. <laughs> but that's the... the quote, do you think... Unquote. I think that's also a good one for can we remake this? Because, like, would this, like, upset, like, the woke representation crowd? Well, where they're I, like, this I think, is I think really... We a, up till we get to questions. This is a bad representation of disabled people. And you'd be like, but is it? Yeah, I think it's a wonderful. Like, you, like how many times have you parked next to somebody and they're getting a handicapped spot and they get out and they look just fine? You're like, what, it, what, how did you get that? Damn, Cody's just laying into the disabled people. Uh, you know digging what? that You're hole. telling me you've never... Ableist, you're telling me that you've never ableist. Ableist is seen him get out. There's many ways a person can be disabled. All right, before Cody gets us canceled for the Again, third time, yeah, we're gonna go to questions here. Quick break. I apologize so much, everyone who was <laughs> didn't mean it. I love you. Thank you. Hold it, phone. You sanctimonious bore. Who the hell are you anyway, huh? The fastest dick on the beach. While you were getting laid in the Ivy League, I was getting my ass shot up. So don't give me any lectures on morality. In fact, in fact, Rich, let me give you one. Don't, don't tell me, let me guess. This is going to be the one about how you see life exactly the way it is, right? Everything's a total crock of shit. Or is it about your leg? Oh, please, not the leg. God. I watched the war on TV just like everybody else, okay? Thought the same damn things, you know, what you thought when you saw a picture of a young woman with a baby lying face down, dead in a ditch. Two gooks. You had three reactions, Rich. Same as everybody else. The first one was real easy. I hate the United States of America. Yeah. You see the same damn thing the next day and you move up a notch. There is no God. But you know what you finally say, what everybody finally says, no matter what? I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm hungry, Rich. I'm fucking starved. So you pick out somebody to blackmail him? I didn't pick him out, you did. And he isn't somebody. He's responsible. For the girl? For everything. Him and all the motherfuckers in the world just like him. They're all the same. So let's blow up AT&T, eh? You know why they're all the same, Rich? Because it's never their ass that's on the line, never. It's always somebody else's. Always yours, mine. We're back with questions about 1981's Cutter's Way. And Martin, I'm going to start with you. Cool. Where does this rank in terms of L.A. neo-noirs? Honestly, I mean, I just saw it this week for the first time. It's it's pretty high up there. I, I loved I loved. What's film. the best? Is Chinatown the best, or are we just counting that as just straight up noir? I'm calling that straight up noir. For me, Neo is like modern era, but also sure. takes place in the modern era. Shot right. in the modern era. Um, I mean, technically, Chinatown is shot in the modern era. Like no, outside yeah, of yeah, it doesn't no, it take but I say place all like place in the modern era. Is what I'm saying. Oh, okay. Like it's like a modern. For me, I think neo noir is like a modern. Yeah, noir. no, that's true. Um, so 
for me, the greatest LA neo noir is is Heat. Period. Um, yeah. I, I just it's it's the it's it's it. Like that's like that's Michael Mann's magnum opus. That's just when I think neo noir at any location, yeah. it's Heat. So I would say yeah. Cody, I'll definitely give it a top four. So you have uh, Heat. You have Cutter's Way. Uh, you have Chinatown. And then one of my personal favorites that uh, will definitely be my pick at some point along the way if we uh, are able to continue this show, uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Oh, Ooh, very good one. That, yeah, that's, that's perfect. Wait, okay. So you made a face when Martin gave his definition of neo-noir, and I want to see it because you just counted Chinatown as best neo-noir. Yeah, so like, I, I am stepping on my own toes. I what, just, I'm just thinking of the de- definitions of the words. Like neo means new. Does noir mean... Uh, no, that's true. Like back. that's like, a straight is, up the literal definition. No, of no, it. noir. Is, noir is about the. It's the the genre. It's like about. Well, it's a period. When uh, I think noir, I think like well, the, the '30s black and white detective stuff. Like, isn't that yeah. what so noir it, means or is referring to? Like Chinatown's a throwback. So not to get like two film history on it, but uh, but um, like Vivian Sobchak, the film theorist, it's a whole thing about you can't define what film noir is. It's one of those it's one of those genres. I, I'm sorry, it's like a some people it, believe that you can though, right? But but basically, it's like detective stories post war America, night, late 1940s. A lot of them are in L. A. It's it's guys who come back from war, detectives. Mm-hmm. It's hotel rooms. It's it's seedy bars. It's all that naked city. I need to types. add another one and make it a top five. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Oh man, that's a really good one. That's a good one. But for me, when I again, I think the modern when I hear neo noir, it's usually also means it takes place in the modern era. Sure, that's you know. Um, but I still love Chinatown. I, don't, I think we're just cutting hairs here, splitting hairs. Yeah, I mean, we are basically splitting hairs about it. But I think that's what makes hairs. this interesting. Oh, okay. Here, I'm going to throw one out for you: to live and die in L.A. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, like is this better or worse than that? Because to me, this is better. This is, I don't know, I struggle. Because To Live and Die in L.A. is the one, It for me, it's like Heat, To Live and Die in L.A., this um, is, wait, Night Moves is in L.A., is it? Gene Hackman? Yeah. Um, I don't. Well, I, think I, know, I think it's Florida. Florida. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the South. So that doesn't count. It's a neo-noir, just not an L.A. neo-noir. Yeah. Um, man, what a double feature Night Moves would make with Cutter's Way. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, to watch, to think about To Live and Die in L.A., obviously you have William Peterson and just that prime mid-80s, like, neuroses, like, ner- neurotic, like, cop. You know, right. Will, Will Graham and his character and also in Live and Die in L.A. Well, we're going to get into it in a couple weeks with another William Peterson movie. Yeah. Where I want to ask the question if that movie's a neo noir. We'll get into that then. Yeah. Um, but I think. Yeah, and beyond so, the. Beyond just to pick hairs, if, if noir isn't referring to a particular time period, do you need to put neo in front of it or can you just say noir? Yeah, that's the other. Well, that, that's because, a good question, actually. Well, actually, yeah, because neo noir is defining when era is because, like, noir would be like. This was the original run of noir. This is the 40s, the 50s, right. the black and white detective stuff like Martin just said. But then neo-noir would... To me, neo-noir means color. Almost Interest, always. Yeah. Like, so um, just anything that's after the, the era of black and white? or So, well, so if, if a noir film was shot today but filmed in black and white intentionally... No, that would still count because you're neo-noir. still neo-noir. Now it depends. Like, so you're just saying... What like if the, you're doing period... 
Because like then you're that's just doing talk- noir. That's what I'm talking about with Chinatown. Yeah, but again, you're film. talking about era. You're replicating another era yeah. when you do period movies. So like to me, again, time comes into play with how you label it. Like neo noir to me, it will always mean almost like ninety eight percent of the time mean color. Like the only thing I could think of off the top of my head that would be neo noir that's black and white is Sin City, and even that has flashes of color. Yeah, only so, the red. And the yellow. yellow, yeah. But that's also like, that's him being so, like, obvious with the well, and that's Frank style. Miller it's doing noir, doing and then noir and Robert Rodriguez just on. doing Frank, uh, Frank you, Miller's you, panels. You, you did leave out uh, the spirit. Well, yeah, it's same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's so like or like um. For the spirit. Oh, what's that Jeff Daniels movie? I think where he met Meg Ryan on DOA, where mm-hmm. it's all done in black and white parts and. So that would be another one. Um, or a film like Body Heat is like a neo-noir too, where it's like modern day. Yeah, that's neo-noir. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think this ranks pretty high. I don't know where in the LA neo-noirs because we haven't even brought up like Refn stuff, which I think in for me ranks very high. Like I love Drive. I love, love could do an entire podcast by itself on Too Old to Die Young and like – to me, he's one of the guys, or um, it's not L.A. neo-noir, but uh, Only God Forgives is another one that I love to death. Drive is definitely going to have to be one of my picks for the future also. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he does own, like, I think that is, like, a, a definition of modern, like, modern, modern neo-noir is, is right. Ruffin. I mean, like, I think... Well, like, and then, like, Walter Hill, like, the driver is neo-noir. Is neo-noir, yeah. Um... Streets of Fire has elements of it, but then like it's also it's, it's, it's out of time, you know. It's right, like, it's like a timeless. It's more place. that's more of a fantasy, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, we've run on way too long with this Sorry. question, but this ranks pretty high. That's where we're all going to stand. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, second question, also a ranking question, Jeff Bridges. Where does this rank for him, Cody? Go. Uh, it's just off the top of my head. Uh, I I love his performance. He's so he's he has a way of being just like nonchalantly cool, like without trying. Right. He he carries himself well. Like you believe his character without even trying to. Like fr- I mean, from the from the get, from the first frame that you see him, he's this cool, confident guy that's just kind of going with it. It's not beneath him to be a gigolo, but it doesn't make him any lesser of a man than he is i'd love to see somebody cut together like some kind of fan trailer that postulates that this is a prequel to big lebowski yeah like what if (laughs) well uh rich bone becomes jeff lebowski to to spoiler alert for uh questions later ahead my my uh my double feature is big lebowski for this oh man (laughs) is that all of us did we all do that No, no not at all oh okay all right uh, but for yeah, my spoiler ahead for the next question is well. Then we'll, we'll we're gonna we're gonna save yeah, that. So, for so his, double his feature, uh, for uh, Jeff Bridges' iconic roles, uh, being this is the first time I've I've seen this and I didn't know it existed before, I'll, I'll put it in his upper echelon uh, definitely. I've never seen him do a character like this before. I would kind of liken it to uh, Starman uh, just because of the the. Well, Starman's what like three years later. Eighty-four. Yeah, yeah. then this is eighty-one. Yeah. So, but and Starman's only, much like emotionless, but that's intentional. The only thing I can think off off the top of my head because there's there's some great young Jeff Bridges stuff. I mean, you have uh, we talk about Michael Cipino a lot, but you have Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Um, you have uh, him in Heaven's Gate, which is a great young Jeff Bridges performance. Tron. 
Well, he I was is, I was going more stuff it, but... that's like uh, in the vein of like okay. uh, Last Picture uh, Show Cutter's is White. amazing in. Last Picture Show is a big one and then there's another movie that's kind of a, a revisionist bootlegger western western called Lolly Madonna XXX. Thought I which, remembered him in some Pearl Stats. Yeah, where he's really really terrific in that. Um and then I'm thinking there's a Taylor Hackford movie I always forget it's named for a Phil Collins song. Um, I always want to call it all the right moves oh, you because have it, um, he plays. Um, it's um, against all odds. Against all odds, yeah. Where he plays the football player, and I believe it's Rachel Ward is in it mm-hmm. that he's being a bodyguard to. Um, that's along the same lines of uh, Cutter's way to where he's playing a very nonchalant, kind of disengaged individual. Doesn't have the disenfranchisement to go along with it, but he's just kind of blah, you know going his own way martin where's this rank for you for bridges um so i mean obviously we've just seen it recently as well like cody um i of course like everyone love him as the dude um but i'm also a big fan of like i mentioned early arlington road i just love that movie our buddy mikey who's been sitting in the room with us the whole time and being very politely quiet just p- pulled up fearless on his phone too and that movie is a great fucking i was, I was gonna say fearless fearless and blown away oh are, shit yeah blown Stephen away is hopkins great. like my favorite like my favorite 90s action directors and like I, I feel like that bridges had that when it came to action thrillers he just he could be intense and scream he's the kind of guy who could say like get out of there get out of the house like he has the energy oh you know what you it's know? another great bridges performance i feel like doesn't get talked about a lot the vanishing very yeah where he's the 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 psycho professor who's mm-hmm. basically pulling off the experiment and burying people alive he's he's awesome he can play dark um and yeah fearless i mean him with peter weir is kind of a good link up he does play the villain in iron man do you yeah and he's bald as fuck man yeah, he sure he, he's great in first iron man it's like that's true He's in the cave with a box of scraps. Yeah. <laughs> that movie is actually pretty good. I'm not a big MCU person, but The Golden it's still Goose ripped. is laid his last egg. <laughs> now here, I'll ask this question to kind of, I guess, elaborate on something and make it maybe a little easier or at least a little more binary, let's say. Do you prefer old bridges or do you prefer young bridges? Cody? I'm going to say old bridges. Yeah. Uh, Do you prefer old bridges or old bridges doing the croaky voice? You know what croaky voice I'm talking about. Give me an example. His post um, True Grit. True grit. Ah. Oh yeah, so yeah, True Grit. He kinda, and... Well, because he kind of does it again. Yeah, he does it in R.I.P.D. and then he does it Hell in Hell or High, High Water. Water. Yeah. yeah. Uh, He's I'll, just been playing the same fucking character in different I, eras. When, when you've had a career as long as his, and you're as well known and beloved, like you can, you you're allowed to rest on your laurels at some point in your career. Right. It just feels like um, to draw the Oscar parallel uh, with True Grit. It feels a lot like Pacino after Sen of a Woman. Yeah, where yep. everything was hua hua, and he I was just basically watched like, a, uh, a, a, like a clip from I don't know the early thousands of Bill Hader on Conan. Yeah, yeah. He's doing his, oh my god, uh, his it's Al amazing. Pacino. He was like, he was like, he says the same thing. He's like, yeah, pretty much after Sen of a Woman, it's all just hua hey, all right, I'm yeah. over here. Ah. She's got a great ass. <laughs> your head all the way up. So what about you, Martin? Do you prefer old bridges or young bridges? I actually prefer young bridges. I uh, do too. I think that what you, what you just said was going to be my point is after, after True Grit, I just, when he shows up in a movie, it's hard for me to watch it. Even yeah. Hell or High Water, which I love as a film, 
I'm like, I can't hear what you're fucking saying. All these I can't movies, understand you. except for R.I.P.D., are good. Exactly. Yeah. So is he kind of like in the same boat as old man Tommy Lee Jones? No, 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 no. no, 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 no. Tommy Lee's been doing a lot of different shit. Like, I think Tommy Lee is one of the more subtly versatile actors we've ever had. Because right. his also Tommy Jones is not doing like Tommy Jones is still. I'm doing, glad I could get such a reaction. Sorry, I'm no, excited now. No, no, it's great. Tommy Jones is still doing. Like it's not he's not doing he's not doing an affected thing like you're saying with Pacino like he's stuck with Son of Woman that's yeah. what I feel like with Bridges like what is this like weird old man western thing I don't even, I mean I don't like Crazy Heart as a movie period it's like I've I've seen <laughs> I've seen Tender Mercies I don't need to see a remake of it oh but so so I, I definitely um, prefer younger Bridges because like I grew up with like I did grow up with Tron and just seeing him as kind of like this young hero yeah and so just kind of stuck with that and even I'd say to like if Young Bridges includes Arlington Road and like the mid '90s thrillers, I'd say mm. I, that's like middle age Bridges. No, yeah, that's that's midlife crisis Bridges. Yeah, so I had to choose. That's Bridges drives a Porsche Bridges. Yeah, exactly. It would be that. So I'm I'm real into Young Bridges. Like, and that's another thing that I came to kind of later in life. But I spent a lot of time. Like, I rewatched when Criterion put out Heaven's Gate. I rewatched that a lot, and I love Young Bridges. I also love Young Walken in that too. He's terrific. In also it. beautiful. Uh, Just yes, yeah, and angelic. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> angelic as he shoots people with his fucking double-barreled shotgun. Yeah. Um, I also love like I don't know when it'll happen, but this is an inevitability. But I will double feature Lolly Madonna XXX with it because I feel like it's one of the great underseen revisionist westerns cool. that's ever existed and there's a great young bridges turn in that um i'm also a big fan of uh this movie which has to me peak young bridges like this is him operating at the height of all of his powers the height of his beauty like it re- it reminds you because we look at jeff bridges now and he looks like you just take him as that like a uh, weird old uncle kind of guy well he kind of looks like one of the frog people from hell comes to Pro- frog town a little bit <laughs> Like, so you forget that, like, at some point, like, he was, like, uh, poster he, he was, boy or, yeah, like, model ready. Tiger teen beat leading guy. Exactly, yeah. Like, I beat it to him There's something. <laughs> there's something captivating about his eyes, and I was noticing it in this yeah. film, and I don't know what it is exactly. I'll have to, like, put a bunch of stills from different movies of his What's, eyes together. But they, they have this weird uh, property to them where they look like they're almost, like, computer generated yeah they have this strange glow i don't know if his pupils aren't perfectly round or if there's like some weird ring around his iris or something or if it's just like the hue of the blue in his eyes right but they have this other worldly quality to them well it's kind of what it's kind of what carpenter exploited with starman is that he right. saw that there was an otherworldly kind of beauty to him for sure and you don't think about that now um so next question is an actor question john heard do we like dad john heard from Home Alone, or do we like scumbag, one-legged pirate John Heard talking about like racism stuff and and really just hating America? I pr- I prefer this John Heard. Yeah. Um, I, I think and I, it goes back to the question about Bridges too. It's just a young John Heard. Like I yeah. think about this, and I think his performance in Chud is actually good. Yeah, like, he's actually performed quite well. In he that. was, by all accounts, he's very like when he was young. He was one of those quote unquote difficult actors. Like mm. he was tough to work with. I think there are some stories even from the set of this movie where they said he was very he was so into the character that he was almost unbearable to be around. Wait, which, so his method acting? Kind of, yeah. 
It's interesting though because I, I I like watching. We're having the same conversation. So he was the Jared Leto of his day. Uh, I mean, <laughs> no. We're kind of the same the same conversation about bridges here, where it's like when you think of this person, do you view them as this kind of father figure, yeah. kind of guy who they both want to play kind of similar roles later on, and then for one to be very. To see heard here is just kind of I don't know it's kind of revelatory. It's like wow, like this guy's got some fucking chops on him. Have you ever seen the movie Betrayed? Yes, it was uh, Joe Esterhaus wrote it. I can't remember. I think Norman Jewison directed it, but it's the one where um, they they infiltrate neo Nazi uh, kind of survivalist clan. The FBI does, and John Hurd plays kind of like a scummy middleman for. I think it's Deborah Winger is the undercover agent who goes undercover and falls in love with a, a neo-Nazi and it obviously becomes a thing. Um, but like, yeah, that's a good midpoint between this and dad John Heard because he's more put together. He's shaved. Like he looks like a presentable kind of middle America guy, but he's a total dickhead the entire time. Yeah. Um, and then you get to like home alone, John Heard. You know what is another like great midway John Heard is Sopranos John Heard. Oh, where he's the scummy. Last role? Uh, I believe it's close, if not his last role. Yeah, it's yeah. close to it. But he's a real scumbag in that too. Um, what do you prefer, Cody? I much prefer this. I much prefer him swinging for the Oscar fences. Like I didn't. Yeah, I because didn't know this is this a fucking him. swing. Yeah, the the only other thing that I'm familiar with him was, and you pointed this out to me before we started the film, was, <laughs> was Home Alone. And I mean, that's the him doing that movie. That's such a throwaway part. Like, he, I mean, he 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 brings what he has to that part, but it's there's not much to see. Do that was there. me being a shitty cinephile before eh. we watched a great movie. As I was making fun of you. Yeah, I know. He, I'm aware. but he, I, I think like even watching Big last night, like he's he was a great actor. Like and he, he's he, he's he, kind of a shithead in that too. Oh, a total shithead! But yeah. he like he's but, got that face. But he's just really <laughs> he does. <laughs> but he's actually good at it. He's just he's tell me he, I'm wrong. He I almost had I think he became a came a character actor. It's like we need a dad role. We need an asshole yeah. exec role. John Hurd. Yeah, he you got know, like his. He got a. Good you don't know agent. how the McAllisters make the money that they do to afford that fourteen bedroom home, but yeah. you see that guy's face and you're like, he's a shitty corporate lawyer. Uh, he exactly no, he I'm... works for the Defense Department selling nukes overseas. Well, I think he's go. Michael Clayton. I think it's a prequel to Michael Ooh. Clayton. <laughs> That's now the... we're talking. Now we're cooking with peanut oil, baby. <laughs> so uh, to kind of jump off of that. Um, and also to kind of address Cody's uh, kind of displeasure with the movie a little bit, um, a more broader question that takes us off Cutter's way. It's not way. displeasure. Like I still like. Well, I'm it just saying the thing that you don't. Why you uh, like it? It's just it's just a hard watch. Well, let's put it this way: like you dislike it for the re, or like you found displeasurable at times the things that I revel in with this right. movie. So I feel like there is a clear disconnect in terms of like taste. It like in that the things that I connect to, or at least that I find pleasurable at times, you're like, this is rough, man. (laughs) So, but here I'll kick this question to you. Then do movies need uh, to have likable characters to be entertaining? No, uh, I can't think of a topic or a film directly off the top of my head, but I mean, there are several in the last 10 years easily where you have antiheroes as heroes. Yeah, stuff like There Will Be Blood yeah. is probably off yeah, the top of my head is an easy example. one. That's a prime example. Um, or even, I mean, just to go with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, he's also fantastic in um, Gangs of New York, which is also not a very pleasurable movie to go through, but it's still a good film. Or Phantom Thread. Like, Phantom Thread's even asking you to hang out with somebody who is 
not fun to hang out with. And that's maybe my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I don't know. They, they pushed that. And the question you're asking is like, can you have a film with unlikable characters? But people can be assholes who are likable. Sure. You know? What's like, the name of the director that did uh, The Lobster and the... Oh, Yorgos Lanthimos? Yeah, what was the name of his follow-up to that? Uh, Killing the Sacred Deer? Yeah. yeah. None of those people are likable, but it's That's still true. it's still compelling cinema. That movie also feels like it's fucking made by aliens. Yeah, seriously, yeah. it's <laughs> aliens putting on a stage thought. show of what exactly. human life is like. Their interpretation of human life. Yeah, they, that is that is an amazing. Thank you. They they discovered how to communicate with human beings through like watching Stanley Kubrick movies. Right. This is how they talk. Yeah. Um, They're all monotone, and they only convey emotions through the speed in their peach patterns. I would say that you don't need yeah, you don't need likable characters to have a compelling film. Um, well, I didn't say compelling; I said entertaining. Entertaining, yeah. Because, but again, I think there's a clear difference. I think this is on the line of okay. them being realistically unlikable people. Like they're all kind of like even Mo, who's the most likable. It's like God, they just live in this horrible house. They're just slovenly, all of them, and they're right. over all time. And it's like it really wallows in this environment that it creates. We didn't even like, touch on the fact that the house burns down with her in it. Yeah, right. It, it's, it just, Which is honestly, I mean, I'm glad you brought it up now, though. Is that like the closest thing that we have to a likable character is killed and is suddenly killed in a way that like off screen. That was the thing that that kind of drew another verbal response from you guys. Is that because it, it's literally right after. They have the awkward crying sex. Yeah, is that the when the house she compromises burns down. her last principle? Yeah, is when she's taken out of this world. Then she dies. Yeah, and you also, I think, it's one of the key parts that also is up for in my mind. That's the most ambiguous, and it's kind of speak to your point about the fact that is this an invention of Cutter's mind, or was this an actual like were they on to something? Uh, because you know, Cutter reads it as uh, the rich guy, essentially. They, he knew that they were onto him because his wife right. overhears them one day at the country club. And it's a very funny scene, but it leads to this death scene. And it makes him think he knew. So he killed Mo because he thought Bone was there in his way to get rid of them. And the camera work before that puts doubt in your mind because it does a, a slow It makes you wonder if she the, just uh, let a spark. The electric fireplace, right? Exactly. And the, well, not only that, it makes... I honestly wonder if she saw a spark and just let the house burn down with her. Yeah, I, that's the vibe I get. Well, she was out, though, because he got up and got her head off. Like, she didn't True, stir. yeah. I, I think she killed herself. I mean, I, again, I, I think it's supposed to be ambiguous. I don't think the film... You think she killed herself by letting herself be burned alive? Yes. Yeah. Um, wow. So here's what I you, think, Cody. I think that the fact that no, I love it. It's just damn. John, so, so Cutter's character, the whole film is about not wanting to deal with his own shit by finding a mystery to solve. Right. right. So he he's complete. He's always for he has you have Bridges who runs away, but you have like Cutter who deflects. I feel like he finds his way to like deflect any, from any real introspection. And Cutter is also simultaneously like emotionally holding captive his wife. At yeah. Home. Exactly. Like, yeah. That, but, but what I'm getting at is exactly that, where it's like. Instead of saying, oh my God, that did, did um, Rich and I kill her through our actions and inaction, right. it's easier to say, again, it's all this rich guy's fault. Like, it's easier to put it on this thing versus to look at your own responsibility in this situation. Well, and to, so, to, where, if, whether it was an accident or not, he quickly jumps to. Well, and to jump him. off the suicide thing, I think it also makes the audience wonder, like, at what point does his emotional abuse and neglect 
lead to her just not caring because like you could view the house burning as the fact that she's always like almost like a visual metaphor for the fact that she's always been in a burning house and let it just kind of burn she's around letting, her. She's letting her gilded cage burn down. Around yeah, her. exactly. And so she just, yeah, exactly what you just said. But it's, it's, it's cutter and it's, it's rich. Like they're both like, they both are treating her very yeah. fairly. <laughs> it's yep. this horrible thing where it's like, she's this one attractive guy who like, yeah, she's attracted to, but it's basically going to, she knows going to use her and probably go find another yeah. woman. And the guy who they she used to have a deep love with is gone now, but she's just part of this. They're used to it, so now they're just like they're keeping it going. And I think that's the sad thing is instead oh, of oh man, so the mortar left behind the burned fragments of her lover, so now she's letting herself go down in the burned fragments of the home that they shared together. Ooh, yeah, I mean that I mean, that's that's possible. Um, All right, yeah, no, it's no. Uh, but just the way I view it is very much them instead of looking at their own responsibility, or saying it's easy to keep on this this fantasy. This is their point to turn around and say we fucked up well, and say maybe we did something wrong. I think to to honestly kind of bring it that back to like what we said earlier and that like you can kind of create a shorthand and like filling in backstory. Like we don't need a monologue or anything to tell us that they grew up together or went to yeah. high school or whatever. We kind of fill in those blanks. Yeah. I think what kind of fully defines their prison together in the way that they've gotten used to the the comfortability of life as a trio as you just kind of pointed out is that try to imagine any of them moving on from each other. I fit. I like, I can't imagine what their yeah. lives would look like. So what is bones prison? So, uh, cutter's prison is his body. Uh, his wife's prison. Mo's, Sex. Mo's prison is okay. Mo's prison is her relationship with cutter and the home that she's in. I believe it's sex. I think it's kind of what Martin just said is that you, he's deflecting or at least like the only way that he keeps going is by, or can feel any kind of connection anymore is with some kind of woman. And even then it's just the connection is purely transactional. Yeah. Cause in the end of when he's sleeping with the, uh, the, the lady in the beginning, he's like, Hey, you want to buy a boat? Yeah. He basically sells it. And she even says like, Oh, it wasn't that good anyway. And he's like, yeah, neither were you. <laughs> like it's a total like lie agreed upon. And he asked, but like, it's not, he's not even an official gigolo because he has to ask her for $20. Yeah. Like it's like, it's gas like, money. It's gas money. He's like, Hey, he, she's like, you got a five. She goes here, take 20 or something like that. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And like, it's all, it's almost like his mom giving it's, it adds a weird, like she's incestuous older. thing. She's yeah. Older. So yeah. yeah. Uh, moving right along. Yep. Yep. Um, what's a movie either one of you came to later in life? We kind of touched upon this earlier, but. Cody, what's a movie you experienced later in life that kind of had a bigger impact on you? Like a movie that I'd seen previously that didn't hold weight and then I saw it again? Well, almost just like a new to you. Like all of a sudden you stumbled upon this thing that you knew was out there and it just it left like a, a fingerprint on your brain. So it's probably Reservoir Dogs. Okay. It blew my mind apart. Yeah? Yeah, because I didn't have any familiarity with any of the Hong Kong cinema. So seeing... This was a completely original and new and glowing new light of cinematic inspiration for me. Okay. Martin? I'm looking behind you at my my Blu-rays <laughs> to decide. Yeah. Um, honestly, yeah, it would probably be something with... It would probably be something Schrader. I kind of came to him later. Okay. Um, so I would probably say Light Sleeper, American Gigolo. Like, yeah. I hadn't seen those files probably 24. Um, and then... Much later, I would say um, Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo okay. was a film that I just like kind of came to Westerns late in my life and was like, oh, why haven't I not watched? Now I watch that film all the time. 
Isn't Rio Bravo the movie that Quentin Tarantino talks about that he shows his date, like his potential girlfriends on like their third date. And if they don't like it, like he's like, we're breaking up. I'm not sure about that. Um, I, that sounds like something fucking weird that he would do. I don't know if this is a true thing, but I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere. I do know that in grad school, um, they asked me to pick a movie to have for like a big party, like we we're going to watch it on a big screen. Right. And I didn't ask anybody. I said, we're just going to watch Rio Bravo. And I got hate mail. People were like, fuck you, Martin. We want to watch Rio Bravo, some dad movie. And I was like, and they wanted to wa- they ended up watching this In was... the Loop, the Inucci film, instead that... of Rio Bravo. Oh, okay. I'm like, cool. Good choice, guys. They do be what... brothers, do you? What's that? They do be brothers, you. Yeah. You suddenly were Yacht Rock. <laughs> exactly. Which, again, another connection to uh, Jeff Daniels' character, or Jeff Bridges' character. Yeah. Hey. I do it all the time. Hey-o. Um, How about you? What was a late, a late, I mean, besides this? I mean, Cutter's Way? But can we just say? <laughs> and it seems a little on the nose. The whole episode is about Cutter's Way. So, um, movie I came to later in life, um, Sorcerer would Hell be a yeah. big one. Uh, by William Friedkin. I didn't uh, actually see that until there was that 4K that was released. I actually saw it on a double feature with To Live and Die in LA in 35mm, also at the Ritz, back when like Draft House and the Ritz were both cool. Um, (laughs) That would be a big one, like because that one was just like like a fucking atom bomb going off in my head. You know, like I couldn't believe I had never seen. That was another one where I used the phrase, where's this been all my life? That was know? the same week I saw American Gigolo for the first time. I, oh yeah. I, they, I was working at a restaurant in Ohio and I rented, they had a great DVD and VHS selection and I got Sorcerer, Light Sleeper and American Gigolo all in one Whoa. week. I'm talking about movies. It was just like, again, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's mind murder right there, baby. Yeah. Um, redefining. I also, we have to have an in-depth talk about American Jiggle at one time. Maybe we'll do it as like a bonus episode. Yeah. Um, because, well, beyond like your personal connection to it, like I like half of it. I know, and you told me that str- before. I think yeah. we've had this conversation where I struggle with some of American Jiggle, particularly where like Schrader's very Calvinist upbringing and his weird moralistic view of sex work kind of yeah. comes in is like that i struggle with that aspect of that movie it's kind of kind of a binary view of sexuality it really does in, yeah. in the film um it's which like, is interesting in its own right but maybe not the easiest to... maybe not the most productive <laughs> yeah exactly um all right so double features cody big you lebowski. already said big lebowski big lebowski easy it's jeff bridges again uh it's a pseudo Crime noir detective. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And he's got a Vietnam buddy. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Plugs right in. Boom. Yeah. Sobchak is a very much comedic cutter. Yeah. It's a <laughs> kind of, you know, cause he, he, oh, he, cause he attaches it. Actually, that's a, that's a great double feature. Now that even Martin brought it up too, is that he very much does attach himself to the mystery in a way. Yeah. You need to tell. I'll so, get you a tell. Uh, I'll, I mean, not like extremely loosely uh, connected, but the, the Coen brothers, when they did Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The, yeah. the main villain, and it wears the reflective lenses, uh, sunglasses. Oh, yeah, you're right. Well, isn't that... No, he, um, but, but John Goodman has an eye patch as the Cyclops, too, which is more of the Ulysses yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you pointed out that the, the guy who plays the industrialist in this is he either he, looks like or is the guy from Beverly Hills, Hills Cop too. He's like, is this the man who oh, ruined yeah, the right. buffet? <laughs> <at> the... <laughs> 
So, Martin, what's your double feature? Uh, River's Edge. I know we've we've oh. brought it up a couple. Yeah, times. you brought it off off mic before. With yeah, me, and I have not seen this. Um, and Cody, you haven't seen it either, right? River's Edge. Um, it is a film that I, I my brother had recommended to me for years. Yeah, it's a film that my brother had recommended me for years and said. This is like this weird, like kind of like teen mystery in a small town, right. and it very much has the mystery, the sense of the way a mystery can affect a group of people. Mm-hmm. And but the idea more is that they know who did the murder, but they don't care. It's more this like sense of like eighties teen on we, and they just don't give a shit, right? Um, but there's a very similar vibe to the whole thing. There's a Crispin Glover performance, which was is by I think maybe his best next to Dennis we, Hopper too. Dennis right? Hopper in a mid eighties indie and crazy. Keanu, Keanu, um, y- Young Sky from um, We should watch s- the same. We should say anything. I've never seen it. I haven't either. I just bought it on Blu-ray, so like yeah. we can watch it whenever. It's, Martin probably has it. Uh, I did not own it actually. I just watched it on HBO. Oh, okay. um, but uh, no, but the, the the very similar idea of actually Cutter's Cutter's character, I think, is it might have even been an inspiration for Crispin Glover's character. He's the kind of ringleader of this group of teens who's okay. Instead of trying to solve the mystery, he's trying to get their buddy who did the crime out of trouble. Right. And, and so its idea is like we got to help him, man. And it's this guy who's who's kind of out of it and driving it, but he's like the mascot of the group, kind of like Cutter is like the catalyst for everything that happens in that group. Did you ever see the movie mean Creek? This sounds a I lot never, like mean Creek. I never watched it. I know okay. I was, had the kid from Drake and Josh, right? Right. Uh, yeah. But I, um, I actually, my brother told me cause he liked mean Creek was like, Oh, it's like river's edge. That's, that's well, and there's also like that, that movie super dark times from a couple years ago that I brought that up to you and you said they're very similar. Yes. It's, it's very like, Super so, uh, uh, super dark times is I think a modern Rivers Edge with more of like with more thriller elements. Like there's no part in Rivers Edge that's really like thriller. You right. know, it's 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 just this kind of like why isn't this a thriller? Is almost the question while you're watching. Is like why don't they care? There should be more action here. Right. And it's just got this great vibe of just like this asshole town where. But that's my that's my pick. How about for you? Uh, Soldier Blue from 1970. Never it's, seen it. Um, uh, it's unfamiliar to me. It's another genre kind of transmutation of the the post Vietnam, and in this case, uh, while Vietnam was going on, like kind of anguish that the country was experiencing, and how people wanted to protest our involvement in Vietnam. But it's a western uh, with Candace Bergen, um, where she plays the uh, former wife of a uh, Cheyenne Indian who is an Indian warrior named Spotted Wolf. She's since moved on and she's become engaged to a Union soldier and she's about to get uh, escorted. I take it her husband was murdered or... No, she left the tribe. Oh, okay. They allowed her to leave the tribe and she even says at one point she's that they, they ask her why she left and she's like, because I realized I'm not one of them. Like I, like she, but she's been raised or has been... Uh, let's say assimilated in a way that she has learned. She can speak their language. She knows how to track. She knows how to hunt. She knows their their is this uh, based war on a true tactics. Story? Yes, okay. it is. I could, yeah, okay. And uh, she's being escorted back to her fiance, who's a, a Union soldier, I believe, a general now. Um, and they get attacked by a war uh, party, and everybody is killed horribly. And she and another Union soldier are basically left to wander through enemy territory 
uh, back to where her uh, fiance's camp is. And it's about how they survive on the road. But some things are kind of revealed where they find out that while she was uh, living and married to a Native American, um, she was trading with the uh, white arms dealers to essentially arm the uh, Native Americans so that they could fight back and even kill Union soldiers. And it's about his, the Union soldiers kind of moral dilemma, her, her uh, companion as he slowly falls in love with her and the fact that he's falling in love with a traitor. He's aware of this knowledge from the get. No, he finds out about halfway through because they meet a kind of rogue uh, arms dealer played by Donald Pleasant. Oh, cool. Um, he, He plays just kind of this very, backwoods yokel uh wagon master who has like a a whole rack of like arms and uh bullets and stuff that he's gonna sell to the native americans so he finds this out and it all becomes about how she explains to him that she doesn't believe in America. She doesn't believe in the American army. She believes that we as a country occupy foreign territory that's not our own. And it all becomes a stand in for America's involvement in Vietnam to where it's all about when America invades foreign soil, think that they can help out and be like kind of a world police. And in this case, like there's the colonialist kind of themes thrown in and it ends spectacularly violent where they basically get back to camp only to witness the massacre of all of the Cheyenne Indians at the hands of like the union soldiers. And it's a pitch perfect. It was uh, produced by Avco embassy. It's a huge kind of Tarantino influence. Like he actually, one of the, the ways that I got turned on to this movie was that the poster he prominently places in Jungle Julia's apartment in That's Death where I Proof. recognize the name from. It has this amazing poster where it's basically this naked Native American girl with her arms tied behind her back. We're on the horizon. This like Calvary's like rushing them. And it just says, uh, Soldier Blue stained by the blood of the innocent. And it really becomes like, it, it's this tonal kind of mismatch to where like, it starts out as a Western. It becomes this kind of not buddy road movie, but it, it's got this goofy, almost like comedic tone to it. Then it becomes a romance. Then it becomes a moral play. Then it becomes a straight up exploitation movie because the last 25 minutes of this movie are fucking brutal with like violence, rape, like all of the worst parts of the Bible basically. But it's all a kind of like how Cutter's way is a mystery commentary on the post-Vietnam angst. This is that just kind of filtered through the aesthetic lens of a Western. It's uh, terrific. Kino Lorber just put a Blu-ray of it out. And that's how I just saw it. So that's my pick, 1970 Soldier Blue. So kind of... Nicely done. Yeah, as usual, I'm going obscure. So... (laughs) Yep. Um... Now, next question, uh, would you, could you, or should you remake this? Martin. Uh, no. Okay. Uh, I would not. Um, I don't think you should. I think that, again, it's kind of similar to what we were talking to with Rolling Thunder, is that I think from a pitch, the idea is generic enough that like, without right. 
this cast without this director, without this exact script, I don't think it would work. Right. There's just a lot of like subtext and a lot going on in this film kind of under the surface that I think the conversations we're having, people might have as well and say, oh, let's make that a little bit more explicit. Right. You know, and it's, I think it would just be this thing or try to have more like mystery plot points. You know, they try to might give it more of a structure. It kind of has a very loose structure at times. Sure. And I think they would try to structure it a little bit more as a thriller. Yeah. And so I would. I mean, oh, this in in the modern studio version of this, like you would have to have the mystery be solved, and it wouldn't end with spoiler alert: Alex Cutter and Richard Bone attacking. Basically, Alex, infiltrating. Alex Cutter dead on the floor with yeah. his, his hand still on the gun that Richard Bone then controls and used to shoot. Uh, yeah, Detroit. Exactly. And it ends on the bleakest note possible. Yeah. Like the studio would see that and be like, you can't, we can't do that. Uh, they would, I could see them doing an, there are plenty of American indie films that are still kind of doing that today. They're yeah. having that new Hollywood feel, but I also, I could see them trying to do it as I think Cutter is a hell of a role. Yeah. I could see like some fan like ours, like imagine like, again, like you're talking about Gosling, like someone who's like, as Jeff Bridges, but like who saw the film when they were younger is like, I've always wanted to get it. And they're young. They're a small production company. They buy the rights and they use this as an opportunity for them to play cutter again. I could see that happening. I don't think it's a good idea though. Yeah. Cody. I would. And I would like to see it done. Uh, Tarantino style, either Ava, um, um, once upon a time in Hollywood or more. What I would actually prefer out of that, um, hateful eight style. And then you would have, uh, I think Ryan Reynolds would be good in uh, Bones' role. Gosling you, or Reynolds? Oh, I'm sorry, Gosling. And uh, then you bring back uh, Jeff for Jake Cole's role, and I'm not sure who to partner with for Cutters, but I think there could be something there. I could see like Hardy coming out like, I want to play Cutter. I could see him like, <laughs> can I do a voice? Am I allowed to do a voice? John Hurd did a voice. <laughs> Bridges is like, can I also do a voice? Yeah, Bridges you can't like, hear what well, Bridges, Bridges, just, Bridges just marbles in his mouth. The Bridges just does it. He's like, nah, this is just how I talk. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I did do it, but hey, that's beside the point. You all got any whiskey and a little bit of weed? You guys seen Bo? <laughs> I, I actually, uh, in the same way that I had kind of my pitch for Rolling Thunder, but where you kind of invert the roles and everything and uh, make it more modern. Like that would honestly be my pitch because I actually do think that the themes of Cutter's Way probably resonate. I hate the phrase that everybody throws toss around today but more now than ever more relevant than ever yeah, yeah but like it really is like in terms of disenfranchisement you could definitely see this as like a post-trump post uh, late yeah. capitalism kind of tale of two guys down and out who want to essentially punish the rich after you know covid and everything so you're saying cutter is QAnon? No, I think they would be like anti-QAnon. I think oh, yeah, actually, you know what? Conspiracy theories? Yeah, I think that but that it's... Cutter would teeter on the edge, but he would be smart enough that where like you would have a scene where he's talking about QAnon stuff. So he's but then just he would be like, chan Yeah, he would kind of. Well, he would like blow the fucking like you. He would blow the theories out of the water. He would be like, "Well, they what they obviously get wrong is blah, blah, blah. you know like he would he would be the anti-Alex Jones almost." Um, but I think you you could where like and it would would be interesting. I think 
the danger of doing that is kind of the whole more relevant now than ever bullshit is that like, I don't know that you want to watch that movie today. Like, because like you get it, everybody's disenfranchised and like this. I don't know. I feel really... like the world's a little too happy right now. We need something to really bring us down. Yeah. <laughs> we really need a dour mystery that, that ends on the worst note possible. Well, I feel like yeah, you could this this vibe you're talking like actually reminds me of Killing Them Softly, you yeah. know, that very much like got, similar, got kind of heavy handed. Yeah, it yeah. got kind of heavy handed, like modernizing that. You know, oh man, imagine the Andrew Dominic take on this material. I think he'd be really that would good. Be kind of interesting. And his new film Blonde is supposed to be amazing. That's another yeah. another conversation. Or JC Chandor would be another one that I would be into with um, the most violent year. Yeah, and stuff like yeah. That. Some someone who has like also they both kind of have new Hollywood sensibilities the way yeah. they make films. I mean like. Jesse James is a new Hollywood film. It was one of yeah. the bloated, like it's a Heaven's Gate. Almost, it's another, yeah, know? it's another movie that's out of time. Like, like Cutter's Way is a movie. Like, I believe that even Peter Bradshaw, because one of the big things uh, was that this movie was like rediscovered later, especially in the two thousands and stuff. Is that like Peter Bradshaw wrote for the Guardian about Cutter's Way, and he called it a movie out of time. Yeah, and that's what it very much is. It feels like a mo- like the best movie of the late sixties through like the mid seventies, <laughs> but it just happened to be made in nineteen eighty one. So. Yes, my answer would be I could see a remake. It would just you would have to handle it with kid gloves. Yeah. Um, final question: Certified face melter, yes or no, Martin? Absolutely not, but that's okay. Um, I think this film. I really, I really liked it. I really enjoyed watching it with you, and I thought it's it's my kind of movie. Um, but I, in terms of the face melter, kind of we're all learning kind of what exactly that means. You know, thinking about yeah. last week with Hard it Target. It means to make the jackrabbit want to slap the bear. Yeah, it, <laughs> exactly. Which I think that's, yeah, how many jackrabbits is the bear slapping? Or, is or this, the as, as Cody suggested last episode, is this a hard target? It's, it is it not. Is, it, it, is is so, not. <laughs> it is so far from a hard target, but it's just very, it's kind of cool to watch them back, not back to back, but week to week. And um, absolutely not a face melter, but it does not mean I didn't love the film. Sure. Cody? Not a face melter. I, I did appreciate uh, the, the pacing of it and the silences that the, the film takes yeah. time to incorporate and really let you kind of sit and simmer and stir with certain emotions and feels and tones. Um, the only face-melting aspect of it that I really see is the extreme last moment of the film. Right. Now, I agree, horse, I agree the horse with chase too there. The horse yeah. coming in and... Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. It's very yeah, yeah. like, whoa, holy shit. Steals the horse. <laughs> Running through the whole party, wrecking the tents and the tables, and then just goes right through the, the plate glass windows and death that. ensues. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. I don't like even as my pick in a movie that I consider one of my favorite movies of all time. This isn't a face melter. It's nowhere near a face melter. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's not great. It's just at, at you know there's a reason why we're sitting here calling it like a total bummer. Face melters are not bummers, right? Well, there's also a reason it was you know, re, uh, a film out of time, as you said. It was, it was rediscovered at a later date. Yeah, it needed time to... It was like a fine wine. and It needed to simmer. Yeah. So that wraps up Cutter's Way, 1981. Guys, as usual, this has been a pleasure. Indeed. Thank you, Do sir. we want to hint at what's next week? Well, I don't even know what it is. So. We're going... Well, it's your pick, dickhead. Oh, damn it. <laughs> it's exploitation. It's martial arts. Oh, yeah, yeah, It's yeah. fantastical. That's all you get. But we'll see you next time on Secret Handshake. Martin? Indeed, yes. You smell terrific. Thank you.